I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another cause which kept the plebeians in a state of poverty was the unjust distribution of the public land, Agar Publicus, which had been acquired in war. William C. Morey, Outline of Roman History. Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I'm Eric, your host, and today I will be embarking upon a three-part series, actually a four-part series, about the lead-up to the Roman Civil Wars and what parallels we see in the United States today. The last of these will be Civil Wars in History, but the first three will be about some of the players in this war, not the ones you might think. You're probably thinking right versus left, and I'm not. I'm thinking about the players in the Roman Civil War and how they factor into today. The Optimates, the Populares, and Senatus. So the Optimates, of course, are the elites. Populares are the the plebeians, the mob. And Senatus is the entrenched government. And today, first, we will be talking about the... I may also just call them the Optimates. So... Be prepared for that. So the Optimates were the group that represented the elites, the wealthy landowners, etc., in the run-up to in the middle of the Roman Civil Wars. The Optimates generally believed the mob wasn't really fit to rule and wanted to rule for them, so very aristocratical. And you see these kinds of aristocratical thinkers throughout history. Again, they tended to own the land, where the populares tended to often be either unlanded or recently unlanded in the case of Rome from the and the optimates represented special interests who benefited personally from a lot of the laws that led to unsustainable economic conditions such as for example the lex agraria not getting signed for those who need a reminder the lex agraria was a proposal to redistribute the agar publicus the public land that had been acquired in war two soldiers who had lost land during the Punic Wars. The reason soldiers had lost land during the Punic Wars, they were on campaign for too long. They'd been used to being on campaign for only a season and then going back to their farms. But during the Punic Wars, they had been on campaign endlessly. Their farms became, they were out of money and they had to sell their farms to bigger landowners in order to survive because they couldn't boot them back up and they became landless. A lot of them ended up in the city of Rome and became that kind of mob, which was typically running around beating people during those elections. So I want to talk about who the optimates are in the United States today. 
Now, I think a lot of people hear Optimates or they think the elites or special interest groups and tend to think of them as like the super rich or mega corporations or the lobbyists that re- that represent these mega corporations. And certainly the mega rich and mega corporations and lobbyists as we think of them, right? The kind of lobbyists for like big tobacco and big oil. They are certainly optimates. But we forget that we are de- that we deal with special interests everywhere and that these special interests are constantly fighting a war to maintain their economic power. This is like not an opinion, it is just a fact of life. And so I want to start with a brief definition, right? The optimate the optimates, the optimates are special interest groups, and special interest groups are those who benefit from structural inequities in the world, often either benefiting from regulation that hurts the wider population or resisting regulation that would help everyone. So special interests are not just people who have stuff, they're people who fight to maintain structural inequities in order to maintain their stuff. Frequently, we have heard recently about structural inequity or inequality regarding race and gender. And I'm actually going to stay out of that one for a bit. And one of the reasons I want to stay out of that one is that it's a little less cut and dry than a lot of what I do want to talk about, a lot of the examples I do want to talk about. The reason the examples that I want to talk about today are more cut and dry is simply that there are great examples where literally the law is being used to promote the interests of a few over the interests of the many. In the United States, this used to be more obviously true. Um, Used to be, sorry, it used to be obviously true. And now there are people that debate whether it's true, right? Debate whether the law itself does or does not affect, you know, in an unfair way, affect the distribution of men versus women in uh, CEO roles and and senior leadership roles, white versus non-white in these senior leadership roles where a lot of money can be made, stuff like that, and how much it's not law but policy, such as how school funding gets handled and stuff like that, how districting lines are drawn, and even how zoning lines are. And one of the reasons it's a little more debatable here is you don't have explicit lobbying groups lobbying for what you think of these these structural inequities, right? So you don't have you don't really have people who are saying, "Hey, you know what? Like we should really make sure we should really have laws that make sure that it's hard for women to be CEOs or or we should have laws that make sure it's hard for, you know, young black Americans to receive um, an education with the same level of funding as as white Americans. And to the contrary, you have a lot of groups who fight for laws that help them, for regulation that helps them. This is classic sort of lobbying, right? Or classic like the rich sitting down with you know, Mitch McConnell type stereotype and saying, hey, cut my taxes. These are people who are explicitly fighting for legal structural changes or resisting legal and structural changes to give themselves an economic advantage. The core example of this in economics is regulatory capture. I've also heard of regulatory trap. And although I can't, for some reason, I can't really find some good loose articles on it, but I've got some, I've got some good stuff about it in the, about regulatory capture in the show notes. I remember a friend of mine from college, she had this term, which was Baptists and bootleggers. And the, her point was that almost any regulation helps out is, is supported by Baptists, right? People who 
want to make the world a better place by restricting what we're allowed to do, and bootleggers, which are like people who want to take advantage of regulation to make money. So in the case of you know actual Baptist bootleggers, this was about prohibition, right? So you know prohibition was supported by Baptists, and it was also, as it turns out, supported by bootleggers, the mob. So the Chicago mob loved prohibition. They made a ton of money smuggling alcohol. And they didn't want it to go away. So can you, would you imagine that they fought to keep prohibition in place? You bet they did, right? They greased a lot of palms, lined a lot of pockets in order to keep this law in place. So yes, sometimes criminals like laws too. Same is true of marijuana, right? The gangs who distribute marijuana have less of a, like they didn't do as good a job infiltrating the system as the mobs of like say Chicago did in the 1920s. So they're not able to quite grease as many palms, but you can bet that the descheduling of marijuana and you know making it a, a legal drug is a threat to the income stream and revenue streams of a lot of gangs in the United States, right? But less, somewhat less nefarious, it is the case that anyone, anytime you have regulation, you can, you know, what you do is you just change the rules of the game and certain players get an advantage by the rules of the game changing. That's just the nature of games and rules. So because every regulation change helps some people more and hurts some people more, you always have special interests who advocate for one or advocate for another. Regulatory capture is the idea that what actually happens is the big players, what they are able to do is they're able to sort of capture the regulatory industry. They're able to focus their influence on the regulatory industry and get the regulatory agency or industry to regulate the market in such a way that it helps the big economic players in the market rather than the public interest. Classic problem in policy economics and policy public policy study that we went over at MIT was just you had these concentrated interests, right? And we'll go over a few examples of these. These concentrated interests who have who who don't by any means outnumber the public as a whole, but they really, really, really care about this one issue. And they have the public as a whole, which cares a little bit about a lot of issues. And the concentrated interests that really, really, really care about one issue are going to win out. So a good example here is the corn lobby, right? Classic, like libertarians, libertarians are all just like, I can almost hear them over the line. I say the corn lobby on the other like, boo, hiss, right? Because it's such a great example of a lot of regulation that the corn that corn growers in America, which are some small players and some really big players, but certainly a very focused group, the corn lobby has a lot of regulation that helps corn growers make money, including including uh, farmers are allowed to let fields lie fallow and be paid by the government in subsidies for that. Why? Well, ostensibly to maintain spare capacity in case the United States needs to stop importing. It's also the case that the reason we use high fructose corn syrup in the United States is because there's high tariffs on sugar coming in from right next door in the Caribbean and South America. Why? Because it helps corn farmers sell more corn because 
It, sugar is now very expensive, so we use high fructose corn syrup. The reason Mexico has real sugar is because they don't have these crazy tariffs. Right? There's plenty of corn in Mexico. They use it in tortillas. They don't use it in their Coca-Cola because they don't have sugar tariffs. They don't make it hard to use sugar. The corn lobby is also responsible for ethanol in your gasoline, even though studies have come out repeatedly to show that using ethanol in gasoline actually makes gasoline more environmentally impactful than just regular, than just if you suck oil out of the ground and, and burn that instead. It's because you have to use all this oil, all this energy to grow the corn and turn it into ethanol and then stick it in the gas. And so the corn lobby is this great example of a group of people that have that have created law or that have brought about the creation of laws that help them make a lot of money and screw everybody else. My the place like I get I get really fired up is if you look at places like Colombia, there are a few things that grow really, really well in Colombia. One of them is coffee. So a lot of people grow coffee and they don't make a lot of money. One of them is cocaine. And so people grow cocaine to make a lot of money. But two other things that grow really well in Colombia are sugar, which they can't export to the United States because of the tariffs, and corn, which they can't export to the United States because of all the tariffs, right? And so Colombia, like why does Colombia have so many coca drug lords and poor coffee farmers who are the victims of these cocaine drug lords? Well, there you go. It turns out it's a lot more complicated than that. But you've got these like cranky libertarian leaning economists who are just like, ah, like if we just got rid of these regulations, we all these problems wouldn't exist. Now, I'm not advocating for no regulation. I, I also hear our more left-leaning friends on, on the podcast like getting ready to send me an email and, and relax. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any regulation. I'm just, what I'm trying to do is point out how we can develop structural inequities through not just a lack of regulation. A lot of people like to blame the free market for bad things happening, but through regulation that creates these problems. And so this idea of regulatory capture is a place where special interests get to flex their muscles and they get to do a few things. One of them is they stifle competition, right? Such as with the with tariffs against sugar and corn. Sometimes if you're the corn lobby, you're lucky enough to be paid, you're lucky enough to one, require people to buy your stuff in the form of ethanol or two, even get paid not to do anything at all. So pretty sweet deal. And so industries, because you have this mechanism, this mechanism by which you can invest money and get a return, right, through regulation, through influencing regulation, industries, businesses, not just, again, not just big businesses, but also some of these small guys, and I want to talk more about them, they devote a lot of time and energy to influencing regulators. While again, these individual citizens who have thousands and thousands of things that if they were you know, if the regulation was written one way rather than another, would all benefit all of us? Those individual citizens can only spend limited resources to advocate for their own rights in each of these. And so the the special interests win. And the, the last thing that often happens with regulation, um, especially regulatory capture, is even if it looks like pretty good regulation, what it often does is it makes it harder for new entrants to come in. So unless you like make exceptions to a lot of this regulation where like, oh, if you're a small player or a new player, it doesn't apply to you yet. What starts to happen is these big guys want more and more and more regulation because it makes it impossible for new players to show up. It makes it impossible for startups to launch. A good example, of course, is the astronomically rising cost of 
stuff like education and healthcare. It's really, really hard to penetrate these industries. They're highly, highly regulated. I'm not necessarily saying that regulation is the main driver of their cost, but it's certainly a major driver to a lack of new entrants in a space where there's a lot of money to be made, right? When there's a lot of money out there, a lot of a lot of investment, one question we often have, often have to ask ourselves is, hmm, if there's not investment in a space, but there's a lot of money being made in that space, right? If, there, if there's not investment being made to create competition, why? And it's usually because there's a barrier to entry, right? So that money flows elsewhere, just like water and, and dams or dikes. So let's look at a few examples here because we talked about like, we've talked about some big stuff. We've talked about healthcare, education. We talked about the corn lobby, but also like drug manufacturers, railroads, airlines, etc. They're really good at making new entry difficult. So these current players don't have to face competition and they'll get regulation that protects them and makes their lives easier. But these hyper-focused groups aren't always like the big evil players that we think of. It turns out labor unions are also special interest groups, right? In addition to negotiating with these, with corporations for, for a better deal for all their workers, they also, as it turns out, also are special interests that represent themselves to legislators to try to get laws passed that are gonna help them make more money right? Because that's the game. But labor unions are actually like kind of a great example of how you also try to fix this concentrated versus dispersed problem in a way, right? Normally you have like one negotiator that can just represent the company, like the company can have a position and then you have tons of different laborers who are each individually trying to negotiate and they just don't have that kind of power because they're dispersed rather than concentrated. Labor union allows them to be concentrated and makes the bargaining field a little more level. And so you're going to like more likely going to get it, you know, an outcome that's a little more fair for everyone. So that's, of course, the power of labor unions. But let's look through a few examples. Some of these are going to, you know, all of these are going to come from like my personal experience, but are back to put data because I, I want everyone to kind of like relate to how their personal experience is affected by some of these, especially smaller form special interests by the optimates around them. So back in 2010, I remember I would go out like dancing or, or to a bar or something and it would be like Friday night, it'd be cold, it'd be snow everywhere. And boy, oh boy, I remember waiting hours for a taxi. I'd call, I would order a taxi, it would not show up or someone else would go snipe it. And I also remember in my own home city of Boston, taxi drivers trying to take me for a ride, trying to drive me around, right? Trying to like increase the mileage of their of the of their ride to squeeze more money out of me, cheat me, steal from me, right? These people were stealing from me and there's few things I hate more than these personally. I remember in Lisbon, Portugal, a taxi driver literally like built a thing that that made their made their ticker go faster. I saw him keep clicking the button, the ticker kept jumping, and I kept yelling at him. I saw the same I saw something similar in in Rome where I tried where a taxi driver tried to cheat me and it was because I was looking at the website for regulations for or for for like price regulations for taxi drivers coming from the airport that I was able to tell this person that their price of 120 euro was illegal and that I was going to pay 60. So I have like all these examples of, uh, and I, sh I just hate taxis. I have learned to hate them because the service is bad. The cars are crappy, right? They're like busted. They smell bad. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And I'm sure a lot of people shared my experience. And why was that? Well, pre-Uber, there was an artificially low supply 
and high demand, right? Why was there artificially low supply? Because of the Hackney system, right? These guys needed licenses. The licenses were originally designed to support the consumer, to protect the consumer from like rando people off the street coming and picking you up. Because of course, rando person off the street coming and picking you up is a really bad idea until you have some technology that can make it a little bit easier to hold them accountable to not being a maniac. And that was part of the problem with these taxi companies is they were licensed um, and licensed and regulated and you could only have so many entrants. And there was just nowhere near enough taxis in the city of Boston. Whereas in New York, you got on there and it actually turns out it was kind of okay because there were tons of taxis, right? And they had to be more competitive. They had to like actually win your, win your, your custom because there were a bunch of them. So when you you know, artificially lower the, the supply of something and you have low supply and high demand, a couple things can happen. One of them is that prices can go up, but they actually regulated the prices so the prices couldn't go up. So what actually happened was you're not able, you, you can only make so much money and you can't have more taxi drivers. And so what happened was just the incentive was to be lazy and not care, was to invest as little in your car as possible to make the, you know, if you want to make more money, you have to spend less, right? So you spend less money on your car. You make it, you don't clean it as much. You don't fix it when it's busted or you try to cheat people. And so what happened is like people were acting by their incentives. And of course the Boston taxi drivers and turns out the Somerville and Cambridge taxi drivers who are different and aren't allowed to do pickups in each other's cities. So you drive someone from Cambridge to Boston across the river. You're not allowed to pick someone up and bring them back. Right. So that was an unnecessary inefficiency, but, and everyone knew about it. Nobody changed it. And of course the taxi companies didn't want to change it either because it would just create more competition. They didn't want more hackney licenses because it would create more competition. And they sure as heck did not want Uber or Lyft because that would create competition and competition is bad for the company. It's good for the consumer. And in this case, it's bad for the, not only the taxi companies, but these guys who had to buy hackney licenses. And the thing about hackney licenses is they cost in Boston, they cost $400,000. You wanted to buy a hackney license from someone that costs 400 grand. So the guys that bought hackney licenses just before Uber, they got hosed. But for everyone that had already bought their license, as soon as you were in the club, you didn't want anyone else to get in because you'd already made your investment. And so if you wanted that investment to pay off, you had to stop other people from getting in. And so you had this whole system that was just terribly designed to hose just about everybody. But you had this powerful taxi lobbying group that, again, fought tooth and nail against any change that would actually improve things for poor folks like me trying to get a cab. Now, it turns out I luckily didn't have to get cabs often because Boston had decent public transit, but I sure as heck wasn't going to use it. It was bad for the consumer. It was good for the special interest group. Similar, a little less dramatic. In Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, when I was growing up in Pennsylvania, if you wanted to get beer, you had to go, there were two places you get beer. You could either go to a tavern, which was a certain kind of pub with a license, and you could pick up a six pack of beer. Or you needed to go to a beer distribution center, which were few and far between, and you would get beer in 24 packs there. Nothing in between. Couldn't get it in grocery stores, couldn't get it in these like regular liquor stores, just couldn't do it. And so, of course, Massachusetts, of course, famously had blue laws around where you can and can't get beer and liquor. You are not, in Massachusetts, for example, you are not allowed to have happy hour. It is illegal to discount liquor at any time. 
So you are not allowed to have happy hour in Massachusetts. This is the source of many jokes about the misery of the city of Boston in February and why everybody in Boston is so angry all the time, right? So who the heck benefits from this? Well, again, this is this the people who benefit here are the people who already sell liquor. You know, there's also a just like cripplingly low number of licenses. These blue laws were originally in place because you had a bunch of Baptists who didn't want people drinking too much, especially on Sundays. So go try to buy, uh, go try to buy a, a handle of Jack Sunday morning in Massachusetts. Good luck. That happens to still be true. That one doesn't so much help the the license holders, I think. But most, but certainly limitations in licenses that you can give out helps these license holders because there's less competition. People still want to drink, but they gotta come to you. So you're gonna get a more brisk business, right? You're not gonna have someone pop it up next door trying to undercut your prices or sue your customers. Similarly, why would why would anyone want? to lack, to not have happy hour. Restaurants would love happy hour, right? Well, liquor stores hate it because if people can go get discounted liquor and get shammered at the pub or at the restaurant, they're not gonna go buy more liquor on the way back. Turns out drinking at home is a big thing in Massachusetts. And therefore, you have public interests that actively advocate for a lot of these regulations to stay in place because it helps them, right? These are little guys. These are not like the big evil corporations. And in this case, like the liquor store thing is like a little more of an inconvenience. But but these these where you have these license-based professions where you can artificially limit the supply of licenses for like not really a good reason, right? Like what does a liquor license really, what, what does limiting a liquor license really do for anybody? Not much. Right. Even if you believe in public safety, it's like, okay, have some basic training. It's not like the guy who run the liquor store are like the MIT crowd that like popped out with a master's degree in food safety. Right. Like a lot of these guys, like you've been to a liquor store. Right. It is not they are not the cleanest, safest places on Earth. So are you really protecting the consumer by limiting the number of liquor stores that you can buy liquor from? No. Right. It's just, the answer is a clear no. It's really the law's remain the only people who benefit from these laws in any way are not the public at all. They are 100% the people who own these licenses and sell liquor at prices that they do not have to reduce, period. The only reason really anybody in Massachusetts is any competition is because they got to compete with New Hampshire. That's a story for New Englanders. So now what might look a little bit familiar here is, hmm, artificially low supply, high demand. Where do we know something about that that Eric likes to complain about? The Bay Area in California. Let's look at housing, right? So just a friend of mine, it wasn't actually even in the Bay Area, but happened to be in another kind of hot market. They posted their house on a Friday. They got 23 requests to, 25 requests to view and three blind offers by the next day, Saturday at noon, and closed within two weeks of posting it for well above asking. This should not happen. This should not happen, right? There is way too much demand for housing and not nearly enough supply in tier one markets in the United States and now tier two markets in the United States because the tier one markets are, are impossible. And the U.S. population isn't really growing much faster in the past. It is the case that building has slowed. It is the case that building has slowed. We are building less, you know, and of course, my experience in the Bay Area is crazy. If you like walk around the Bay Area, there is a 
there is a like major dearth of construction, even though there are tons of people who want to live here. If you look around the Bay Area, including San Francisco itself, you see like two-story buildings everywhere. Small two-story buildings. Absolutely wild. My friend came and visited me a few weekends back, and we were walking, walking along the Presidio, which kind of like rises up. It's in the northern part of the city. Rises up. And you can look over most of the city of San Francisco. It's not a huge city. There's only like 750,000 people live there, which is crazy, right? But look over the city. There was not a crane on the horizon. Not one. Not one. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Zero, right? There is absolutely no economic reason that there should be zero cranes in the single hottest housing market with the highest prices and the highest demand in the country, possibly in the hemisphere. That is clearly a case of regulation making it hard to build. And we need more houses. And why is this? It's because homeowners vote and don't want the bay to change. If you don't own a home, this is too bad, right? But much more than the renters who showed up quickly, you know, who showed up recently and quickly, homeowners have been sticking around for a while and they vote. And like, I talked to some of them and they're just like, oh yeah, we don't want, we don't want the old San Francisco to change, right? They just want things to stay the same, right? Now, what they won't tell you is, look, dude, my house just quadrupled in value over the past 10 years. And this lack of this high demand and low supply really helps me. Right. But you have a lot of people who run around otherwise being quite left wing, but like all of a sudden they look at their own, you know, look at their own investment here. And, and one, they like that, but two, like sort of just as selfishly, you know, like, I like my neighborhood. I don't really care about anyone else moving here. In fact, frequently I want to blame other people moving here and throw rocks at their buses. Right. As if that's the problem. But I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote, I, I have a lot of articles about the housing crisis in San Francisco, including Wikipedia, which is like, with the Wikipedia read on it is like super good because it's like super straightforward and very numbers based and makes this like really simple. One of the weird things about what I'll say just right now, the weirdest thing about the San Francisco area housing crisis is that people make it complicated and it's not. There are a lot of people need homes. There aren't enough homes. And people talk about all these like little edge cases. For example, there's, you know, just as an example. There are five vacant homes for every homeless person in San Francisco. So what's the problem, right? Well, why are the homes vacant? Well, people are using them as investment properties. Why is that? Oh, it's because the house, the, the, the price of housing in San Francisco keeps going up and up and up and up endlessly. Why is that? Because demand keeps going up and supply doesn't keep up, right? If people thought supply was going to keep up 
and that prices weren't going to go up, they wouldn't buy them as just investment homes and just sit on them. Because the price wouldn't just keep going up arbitrarily quickly. Because, and why wouldn't the price be going up arbitrarily quickly? Because you're building, right? Because the supply is keeping up with demand. So all these like kind of weird things that people do that seem irrational make sense if you know that demand is going to keep going up and supply won't. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote a couple of these articles. One of them, there seems to be a never ending supply of people who want to move into the city, yet there's virtually no place to put them. A number of aggressive housing interest groups have formed. Some are lobbying to block future development completely and others want to fast track in any way possible. Yes, indeed. There are big, there are big lobbying groups of people who are homeowners in the city of San Francisco, again, who vote and they donate and they lobby and they say, we don't want San Francisco to change, right? The problem is San Francisco's like, part of the problem is, is again, this isn't an opinion. This is a reality, right? San Francisco is changing whether you want it to or not, right? You can direct some of that change, but you can't stop it, right? You can't stop people. There's realistically nothing you can, you know, people complain about um, gentrifiers, right? Moving in from all these other parts of the country, like that, like as if that should be illegal, but you can't stop them anyway. There's realistically no law you can pass. Like it's the United States, the, 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 it's one country. You can't stop people from moving, right? And people go like, well, we should just stop people from moving. But you can't. And so, like, if you actually want to solve the problem, you need to get past that, right? You you can think that for, like, three seconds. Be like, man, I wish fewer people moved here. Oh, and then go, oh, well, because they're gonna. Unless you make it a sufficiently terrible place to live, which seems to be working. That's my personal opinion. But anyway, so let's look at some of the data here in San Francisco, right? So from the Wikipedia article, quote, since the 1960s, San Francisco and the surrounding Bay Area have enacted strict zoning regulations. Shocking. Among other, they didn't say shocking. Among other restrictions, San Francisco does not allow buildings over 40 feet tall, over 40 feet, 4-0, 40 feet tall in most of the city, and has passed laws making it easier for neighbors to block developments. Literally catering to the people who are like, I don't want anything to change just because I don't want it to change. Right? This is the hottest housing market in the country and they just make it easy for neighbors to be like, nah, right? I don't want that to happen. And and you literally can't build over 40 feet tall, right? So you can't, this, I'm not even, not even skyscrapers, just like reasonably tall, you know, reasonably tall developments in the downtown area, which you would expect in a big metropolitan area, right? Um, it's weird. Uh, I actually have a friend who, I'm going to spare details, but they made a lot of money on an IPO. It wasn't their company, but they joined, right? And it went like cl very classic. It doesn't happen often, but like a very classic Silicon Valley story came. She she was an early engineer at this company. It went public. She got a lot of money. And she was like, I'll invest in real estate. And so like, so she she's a landlord now. And she, you know, she has a building. It's like, I think, you know, a few stories tall. I forget how many, two Maybe. Anyway, it houses actually a bunch of people. And she said, like, I want to I want to add a story. And she even like sees this as part of like her civic duty as a landlord to be like, look, I want to house more people. And actually, like she's trying to get a certain like zoning and, and approval for for affordable housing. Right. So she can so she can like create, you know, housing, not just for not just for the rich, but also for everyone. And it turns out that the estimates she got from, you know, construction folks and other kind of real estate agents, like people who want her money who want her to pay them. They said like, well, it's probably going to take about four years and a million dollars to just get through the paperwork. And then maybe you'll be able to build this extra story, this third story, maybe, right? That's not true. It doesn't have to be true. 
it is arbitrary that that is true. It's an arbitrary set of regulations. It's not that it's, it's not that regulation is bad. It's that these regulations and they're changeable. And the reason they don't get changed, even though it's freaking obvious that they need to, is because the people who live in San Francisco don't want things to change. The people, sorry, the people who own in San Francisco are the optimates. They are the elites. They are the special interests, and they don't want things to change. Right again. That's not an opinion. That's fact. Like you can look up. I, I, I've, I've some of these articles. They have surveys of asking San Francisco homeowners what they think, and they don't want it to change, and they oppose regulation. You know, they're a bunch of uh, my personal opinion. They're nimbiers, right? But they oppose regulation that makes it easier to build. That's just a fact, and the regulation makes it hard to build. That's also just a fact. So it is because San Franciscans don't want San Francisco to change that it is hard to build this, to build this stuff. And because it's hard to build this stuff, the prices are higher. And because the prices are higher, a lot of people can't afford to live there. This this problem goes past the city as well, of course, right? Like normally, you know, normally most of the people who want to work in the city don't live in the city. And that's also true of San Francisco. But the growth in the area for jobs just isn't being met by housing units at all. For example, from 2012 to 2016, just four-year period, the San Francisco metropolitan area added 373,000 new jobs, but permitted permitted only 58,000 new housing units, right? Again, the, invest, the money's there to invest, the workers are there to build, it can be done but it is not being done because it's being blocked by regulation. And, you know, in these outlying cities, like I live in San Mateo, you know, there's zero construction near these, near the BART, the BART stops, BART's the subway, right? So like you could hop, you could, you know, I live in San Mateo, it's right next to BART. You could be building right there. You could be building in, you know, San Mateo and San Bruno and San Carlos and Milbrae and all these places along the peninsula. And there's no building there either. There's no, there's, it's, it, you also look around, there's actually, there's there's a little development area in, in San Mateo, so God bless them. They're actually doing a little bit of development there, but like most other cities, so, so San Mateo is actually an exception because there's a bit, but most cities, there's none and there hasn't been for ages, for decades. And it's because a bunch of rich Californians live there. And I don't mean the super rich. I don't mean the villain rich. I don't mean Jeff Bezos. I mean, people you think are normal. They love it the way it is because like everything's nice and quaint. And again, it hasn't become this sprawl yet. And of course, they don't want it to become a sprawl because they like it the way it is, but it means that people can't afford to live there. So I'm going to share a quick story from the East Bay Times. Quote, Los Gatos has planned for homes and commercial development on the site of the last orchard in town for more than two decades. But even with willing investors, millions spent in project costs, more than 100 community meetings, and a lawsuit by developers, not a single house or shop has been built. Welcome to the hardest ground in the barrier to turn. The saga of building 320 homes and subsidized senior units, right? So remember, those of you who are like, yeah, screw the, you know, screw the, the gentrifiers coming in, right? Subsidized senior units. So old people are homeless because of this, apparently. So the saga of building 320 homes and subsidized senior units and a collection of neighborhood restaurants and shops at the entrance to a bedroom community shows the maddening lengths development fights can take in a region desperate for housing. Quote, Every developer I talk to says it's just impossible, end quote, said Russell Hancock, president of the Joint Venture Silicon Valley and public policy lecturer at Stanford University. Quote, there's no end to the war stories. The time-consuming and entirely legal local defense of the status quo gives property owners a powerful voice in shaping their communities, but it also limits the region's already dire housing supply, drives up costs for new construction, and regional planners say threatens the economic dynamo of Silicon Valley. Right, so... 
you know, again, this is one of those things where like, it's obvious, right? You can't, you can't build more. And I, I, what kind of drives me a little batty is that, again, there are people who want to complicate this and say that, you know, say that this is that, that if you somehow build more supply, it, it won't drive prices down. We'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. The other, the other weird regulatory issue that actually like I advocated for changing, which in the, in the state, which they're starting to change incrementally in little ways, again, despite a lot of resistance. And it's because there's so many renters who vote now. But one weird regulatory issue is that your property tax is assessed, your property tax is assessed only once at the date of purchasing your property, which means that nobody wants to sell and rebuy. You have this very static market. Right, so if you sell your home and then you go buy a different one, you know, selling your home would like make it a little easier to build stuff, right? Because like, you know, somebody could buy the, you know, buy up a bunch of properties and and then turn that potentially into a complex rather than a bunch of like, you know, McMansions. But if you went to rebuy a new McMansion, your your literally your your property taxes could quadruple or more, right? So what they're actually doing is they're reducing the what they're starting to do is like for certain people especially older Californians I think they're limiting how much your property taxes can go up when you make this move but it's just it's just another totally unnecessary like shoot yourself in the foot regulation thing other states figure this out right this is simple stuff it's not hard to build and yes there are complications of building you have to improve your public transit which San Francisco is not invested in despite having twice the income per capita as New York let me let me, you know, again, fact for you. You can tell I'm getting very frustrated with San Francisco here because San Francisco, San Francisco, the city, takes in tax revenues per person equal to tw- twice what New York has. Twice. Double. Um, and they can't seem to maintain BART. They can't seem to maintain the roads, right? They can't seem to build affordable housing. They can't seem to build stuff for the homeless, right? There's just like, there's a lot going on in San Francisco that is like pretty messed up. And, and, and so I think a lot of people say like, well, you can't build because you have to have, you have to improve infrastructure. Well, San Francisco, if any city on earth has the money to improve infrastructure, it's the city of San Francisco. Um, so it could be done if the will was there. It's just a lot of San Franciscans don't want it to be done. So Voila. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, and it's, again, it's not just San Francisco. It's the surrounding areas. The peninsula is pretty bad. Marin is the worst. You go north across the Golden Gate Bridge. You get across the Golden Gate Bridge, you keep driving and you go like, where does this big bridge go to? Right. There's not a lot of building over there because people like their, like their small kind of like fake fishing village. There are all these like former fishing villages that rich people live in, but they like kept the rickety docks because it looks cool. It's weird. These are the optimates and these special interests are representing themselves and every optimate thinks that they're the good guys that's the that's the thing like everybody of course including me talks themselves into thinking that i'm doing what's right i'm not just advocating for me i'm advocating for the right thing to do so for example doctors a a the whatever the doctor lobby is shut down a provision in obamacare to let nurses solo certain low pressure medical situations such as splinting a broken finger Right. So can't let a nurse do this solo. Can't splint a uh, broken finger solo. They have to at least in theory be overseen by a doctor. Doctors in the United States get paid tons more than any other country. Just gobs and gobs and gobs more than other countries. They're expensive. Nurses also comparatively quite expensive compared to to Europe. You know, look, I can't tell you that a nurse that nurses generally aren't uh, able to splint a broken finger, but uh, doctors are made for dang sure that the U.S. government decided that nurses are not fit to split a broken finger. And of course, it helps keep the the demand for doctors high and therefore the 
the price of doctors high. Doctors make a lot of money in this country for a reason. No one. Taxi drivers, right? Those, those poor guys who are sitting on their hackney licenses, they howled that Uber and Lyft would mean a much worse experience for the end user, right? If you look at the anti-Uber, anti-Lyft ads and websites and other lobbying thing, things, they talk about primarily how Uber and Lyft are going to mean like all these like untrained, unregulated, unlicensed maniacs would be like picking people up and driving them around, probably just killing them. And that just hasn't been the case, right? Like you look at, if you look at, you know, random, like pick a random survey, Google it, right? Would you rather drive in, would you rather ride in a taxi or ride in an Uber? The vast majority of Americans would rather ride in an Uber. Why? It's better for the consumer, Right. There's more competition, but rather there's, there's a system of accountability to actually incentivize, right? Creating a good experience. And so people prefer it, right? And not to say that Uber, Lyft, Uber and Lyft are without problems, but the argument that the optimates, the taxi optimates make that Uber and Lyft would be bad for the consumer was false. But probably most taxi drivers think that Uber and Lyft are just like bad for Americans as a whole, as opposed to bad for taxi drivers. Another example is aerospace contractors said that startups were too risky for spaceflight. You actually just had like, you, you had some of them representing themselves in DC saying things like, you know, companies like SpaceX should not receive government contracts, right? They're too risky they're too immature. You need, you can only depend on the, you can only depend on the experience of Lockheed Martin. But SpaceX has had over 100 consecutive successful commercial and human launches with zero failures. And no other agency or group, no government, no manufacturer, no operator, anything has ever gotten anywhere close to 100 in a row. Ever. Ever. Right? So SpaceX is by far in terms of safety, Right, which, which again, the, the old operators who have their fingers in, in Washington, right, were saying SpaceX was too risky. When SpaceX has been, had these, the best safety record by a long shot of anyone ever, right? Again, that's not opinion, that's fact. So, and the other really interesting thing is that aerospace contractors are nearly 100 times more expensive to the US taxpayer than SpaceX for the same project as being getting back to the moon. So SpaceX, it was about 2 billion so far. SpaceX got a contract for like two and a half billion to send Starship twice to the moon, I think. So two and a half billion, two trips to the moon. Aerospace contractors have gotten nearly 200 billion for just their R&D to build, the S build and test the STS. And that does not include the cost of getting to the moon. So, and by the way, each flight to the moon has from the SDS would have higher costs and bring fewer people. So it's just a worse product and a higher cost to the taxpayer. And what's amazing is like, they're just kind of so good at like just being big and well-established, keeping their heads down that they've managed to sort of avoid the ire of the mob. Now, I mean, their CEO doesn't say dumb stuff on Twitter, so that probably helps a lot, but they are the optimates as well. And then, of course, even the people that fight housing in the Bay Area seem to have convinced themselves that think that they're fighting the good fight, right? Not just kind of like keep San Francisco from getting weird and like being corporatized, but they think they actually like there are people who have convinced themselves that building more won't lower prices or might even raise prices. I have gotten in arguments with them and they think that the problem is not a lack of housing. They think there is a problem that they call gentrification, which is people moving in. They're the problem. Building will somehow not fix it, right? So like an increase in demand is a problem, but an increase of supply will not solve the problem. Um, and somehow like if you built houses, more people would want to move in, which in some ways is true, um, of course, but it's because 
just the very high prices of stifled stifled demand at this point. And so, yeah, I've, I've had plenty of people at this point tell me that building houses is just somehow bad for the, the housing crisis. And might not surprise you, a city council person said the same thing. So from an article at Curbed, a San Francisco article article at Curbed, they said, quote, in fact, many new housing developments face allegations that building more could drive housing prices higher. Traditional economic thought dictates that these ideals are not only wrong, they're irrational. But to a great number of Bay Area denizens, it doesn't seem so absurd. In 2017, Sunnyvale City Councilperson Michael Goldman went so far as to tell Curbed as F, quote, you won't hear any economist who has done anything in urban economics say building more makes prices go down. That turned out to not be true for the record, as you'll see from sources cited further on, dot, 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 right? So you can go read that article yourself. And it just turns out that like people just make this up, right? They just make up the facts that they, they, because remember this city councilor is representing, who is he representing? He's representing the people who elect him. Who are the people that vote in local elections? They're the optimates. They're the landed gentry, right? So he's got to say what they want to hear. Otherwise, he's going to get voted out for for someone who represents them. So you have people that just make stuff up and, and then like propagate that myth and you hear it over and over again, right? Like we already know this happens in the United States. It just turns out that the optimates do it as well in addition to the mob. And so what I want to be clear on as we like set the stage to think about to think about the looming potential civil war in the United States that everyone seems to be talking about is when we think about the optimates, you know, the optimates are not like the special interest groups, the guys who build a, who like advocate for an unfair society where it's harder to sort of like harder to pay rent, harder to buy stuff, harder to make more money, right? There's a lot going on. People like to pick on just a few big corporations and those corporations do have big lobbying budgets. They like to pick on a few rich people who are probably a little less influential than we think. But there's but the optimates are a lot of industries and a lot of people depending on the situation. I might call them conditional optimates, right? This is where you get nimbies. You know, someone's a populist until it comes to putting that burden on me. And so when we think about like the people versus someone else, the problem with trying to call draw this like black and white idea of like if you make above X. Right. If you're a billionaire, you're the problem. Everyone else is fine. Or if you're a one percenter, you're the problem. Everyone else is fine. If your company is larger than X, if you're a big corporation, you're bad. If you're a small corporation, small company, excuse me, we don't call them corporate small corporations. If you're a small business, you're fine. None of that is quite true. Almost everyone who has economic power has a special interest that is helping support that. And this big web of special interests makes up the very diverse, very weird group that encapsulates many Americans that we call the optimates. Next time, we will talk about the mob, the populares, and their, their role in the world. So until then, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. This is Eric signing off. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.